Welcome to episode 499 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature part two of a two-part conversation we had with painter, photographer, performance artist, among other things, Peter McGough. We talk with Peter from his studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We delve into all kinds of interesting areas, including Snoop Dogg and the Metaverse, Absolute Insanity, Being Miserable, Joy, How to Find Joy in the Apocalypse, the photographer Bill Cunningham, Gore Vidal, and the Oscar Wilde Temple. A grand conversation with artist Peter McGough this go-round. We have an EW essay titled Thanks. We share an excerpt from a short story by Peter Short titled Bottom Feeders, published in the November 2022 issue of The Sun magazine. We have a poem called Earth Energy. And of course, as is always the case, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 499 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Still 
Thanks. Brother-in-law, know-it-all, it was just Thanksgiving. I love him, though his view of human society leaves one with several misgivings. He is a good husband and father and brother and friend, but like most of his philosophical ilk, deep down he pretends the missteps and sins of the past did not happen or have become too complicated for us to possibly understand and make amends. But despite all that, he is still my family. I care for him. In other news, I am a union leader. I represent my colleagues and peers, but these folk are not my friends. The fantasy of equanimity forever steers us to great heights of grandiose ideas and plans. We will be assured financial largeness, job security, and shared governance. It makes me think I will be appreciated and respected for what I accomplish for all of them. Yet, all we do is sit around, lamenting about what we didn't get, don't have, and must still do. The Republican, Libertarian, Green, and that naive Democrat, too. The train whistle blows off in the distance, bidding us all adieu. Over the bridge trestle, toward the tracks laid between the babbling brook and the small city expressway. Amen to the tall buildings, the coffee shops, and hat store display. I think I might treat myself again today in some special way. So misunderstood indeed, I say. Who knows what our world will be tomorrow? Am I Zen or another wandering hen? yearning for more feed to satisfy a boundless need I don't comprehend.
This is part two of a conversation I had with West Village, New York City-based artist Peter McGough, painter, performance artist, photographer, former partner with David McDermott, fascinating man. Part one we aired last week. This is part two. It's one conversation. I cut it in two parts. They both stand wonderfully on their own. Enjoy. Peter McGough from his place in the West Village, part two. But I remember years ago, the Swiss art dealer had me photograph Switzerland for three weeks. And we went to this glacier. And then you could walk in the glacier and there's a polar bear where you could get your pictures, you know, before phones. And now the glacier is half melted. Mm. And that was in the early 90s. But now it's half melted. So something's happening. And, um, but I, I have no control over the weather. I have no control of people's garbage consumption, you know, delivery food. Oh, you make your own food and then the whole box and all the paper is just garbage. Or FedEx is just garbage, 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 so you don't have to leave your office to get a sweater. And uh, so I feel like I'm lucky I saw the wonderful world of where the past was still remnants of it, like an old luncheonette that's still up on Lexington and 73rd, you know, or there was restaurants that were intact from the 1880s or 1920s or something like that. That's all gone. You know, there was a Gorby Dahl book, Burr, I think it was, and they're, in the 19th century, they're looking at them tearing down one of the last Dutch houses. I mean, you know, that's the 1600s. Yes. And, you know, so I think it just makes no sense. You know, they, 14th Street and uh, 6th Avenue, they just tore down three old-fashioned corners to build glass apartment buildings. And the New York I knew as a teenager in the 70s was so exciting. And it was broke and it was dirty and there were incredible clubs and people and creativity. I know people say that, oh, my youth was so this. No, New York was really exciting. Maybe now Brooklyn is exciting for people who came to Brooklyn when they couldn't afford Manhattan. I was in Brooklyn in the uh, 80s you know, my studio. And uh, people were like, going to Brooklyn? I said, it's one stop on the L train. Oh, that's just too far. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I guess the thing is with these last few minutes is you got to enjoy your life. Who cares? Get away from miserable people that are mean to you. You don't need them. You know, there's going to be a, a deathbed reflection of one's life. And I want mine to be like, I had a great life and I truly enjoyed myself. You know, I wrote that book and I was miserable, but I had a really big life with bold-faced names in it. And, you know, all those people are dead. They're all dead from AIDS, old age, you know, drug addiction. They're all gone. And all those people that went to the theater, all those gays from the West Village, they died. So the, now the audience wants to see Disney things. You know, I want to see Disney on ice or whatever they go on Broadway. 
And it's like, wow, this, this is bad. You know, Fran Leibowitz, she was saying, the audience died that made New York theater incredible. I was like, she's right. They're all gone. All those intelligent fags who you know, read the books, saw the plays, went to foreign movies, went to others, they all died. And now it's just families coming into Times Square, which was so deliciously trashy, so good and so old-fashioned. The hot dog stand from the 40s and rats eating cakes in the windows and prostitutes and dirty movies and horror films. Times Square between 7th and 8th Avenue, 46th Street, was a fantastic, debauched neighborhood. Now it's Disney. And Disney, to me, is a coma. <laughs> a coma. You know, and, you know, they, they play to a world that I'm not interested in. You know, I'd rather see Lottie Lenya instead of The Little Mermaid. You know, yeah, I want to see something that's about real life, not some fancy. And, you know, and then people saying it's a black mermaid. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. I mean, that's what people talk about when the planet's being destroyed and people are being bombed daily. You know, and they're like, yes. And then they won the battle in uh, the Ukraine. They took back your city. Great. Now, why don't you just cut it out, killing everybody? That country's destroyed. Yeah, because of a maniac. Is, you know, it, things happen in the world. Life on life's terms happens. And it's a fucking drag sometimes. But that is life. Houses burn. People die. Cars crash. It gets the floods, the destruction, everything. And it's just junk. Crappy cars and crappy furniture that swept away. The thing is, is that people's lives get swept away or bombed out of it. Or, you know, so this is all happening on one little rock in the middle of rocks. You know, in the middle of rocks, floating rocks that we don't know what's beyond our galaxy. You know, they're saying, which is really fascinating, they're saying that the galaxy is farthest, 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 farthest away in time, are experiencing the dinosaurs because they're so far away. Hmm. And, you know, it's all this this uh, transmission of energy. And then they're like, well, these, this uh, galaxy is experiencing the medieval times. I don't know. It's hard to explain because I was listening to the scientists, and I'm not a scientist. But oh, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And everyone's like, my latte? Where is my latte? And you're like... Do you know even where you live? You don't even know what's happening. You're so invested in your latte and getting to, uh, you know, getting your nails done. And, you know, it just seems absurd. It just, it seems absurd. Who am I dressing for? People in T-shirts and cargo pants? Who am I dressing up for? You know, I have my private world. I mean, I'm in a beautiful tailor-made suit of, of bright blue corduroy, you know, and I just dress for myself. Everyone's like, you know, why are you so dressed up? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't wear a T-shirt, a hoodie. I'm supposed to wear a hoodie? <laughs> I'm an old person in a hoodie? I mean, are you 
kidding me? For me. And I think everyone dresses like Star Trek. Except they're not so tight to clothes. You know, the yeah. girls' clothes are tight, but the boys' clothes are baggy. You know? And it looks like Star Trek. I'm like, I'm on the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> that's the way people dress. And they want to have this food. You know, that's, that's the world. The world keeps evolving and evolving and evolving. There's no such thing as time. Time is a mortal thought. It was made up to keep, I don't know why. I should read about who and how they invented time. You know, the sun comes, the sun goes. The sun comes, goes. The, the moon, we only see one side. There's so many stupid theories about it. it's a starship, it's an alien base, it's, there's a people on the moon. I don't know. I wish it was true. It'd be more exciting than watching some reality TV. You know, I'm supposed to watch The Bachelorette. I only watch The Bachelorette, the first episode, because I want to see the hot guys that she's going to date. And then it turns into a car accident. And if I watch it at all, you know, and, you know, here I am, you know, born in 1958, raised in the 60s, and a teenager in the 70s. And now the world's all about this phone. And I'm like, this isn't my world. I'm more curious to see what's out there. You know, I'm reading this book called Reality. It's about this ancient philosopher. And I just started on the train today, and I almost missed my stop. And that's what excites me. So this, this, it's a philosopher who's talking about this ancient way of thinking that's lost. And I only read 10 pages and I'm like, this is a great writer because it's not, he's not trying to impress you with his language. He wants to get his points across and he tells it in a very easy way. So those are the kind of books I want to read. Or I read the Upanishads, which completely melts my heart. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, they talk about the Lord of love. Now that's a God I could get behind. The Lord of love. You know, it's the higher power of love. And, um, you know, it's just shocking how beautiful life can be. But the consumerist culture of constantly getting things, plastic, plastic, has destroyed. You know, watching the graduates and Dustin Hoffman, the old man says, one word for you, son, plastic. I remember that, yep. Yeah, and now that has destroyed our environment where there's an island the size of Texas of plastic floating in the ocean. And, uh, you know, I was looking at this thing about uh, uh, neighborhoods. The 19th century, it smelled terribly because there were horses and there weren't, they, people couldn't bathe and they had dirt roads in the city and it was filthy and it smelled horrible. And uh, now it's all sanitized. You know, except there's plastic everywhere. I, well, that's, I guess that's progress, no? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't smell as bad. But, you know, I think I have to find, I have to enjoy my life. It's easy for me to see what happened in Afghanistan under the bushes, how they destroyed that country. They wanted that oil. There was no weapons of mass destruction. I met one of the people who went there, this gay man I met at a dinner party a decade ago, 
who was one of the people who went there. So there was no weapons. There was nothing there. We wanted to get in there. In Iraq, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they destroyed it. Persia, ancient Persia. And, you know, those crazy people that tear down statues and destroy them because they're not about Mohammed or whatever. It's just ridiculous. So, How does this stuff that you see, obviously it affects you, how does it fuel and form your artwork? Well, I have to make a of a man in a 1920s suit with big butterfly wings being on, being crowned by a gay ghost above his head, putting a crown on it with butterflies flying around him. I lit a fantasy realism. I think the world is, I mean, it's, it's cruel. I don't want to see, I don't want to know about it. So I don't watch the news because they're just going to give you this. They're not going to say, Oh, well, this country's bombing and obliterating this country. So they can just, take over all the property and everyone's like, Oh, we don't want to talk about that. And you're like, Oh, okay. You know, who cares? Right. They're just human beings. You know, we got many of them, you know, it's just crazy. And I think that, that I make paintings to live in my fantasies. Cause I know once I come out of my studio or my apartment, which looks like a fantasy of another time period, I, uh, I make these paintings that I can live in these worlds, you know, of, of whatever it is I, I make. And that's the great thing. That piece of paper, when I was a five-year-old and I drew on with my crayons, that was a world that I felt safe in instead of being made fun of at school, you know, or at home because I was too feminine. I had, my hair was too long. I looked like a girl, whatever. So the art brought me this haven that I could live in. And you know, artists, they're out of their mind. We all are. And it's just, just uh, egomaniac or the depths of, of depression. You know, it's so, it gets black and white. And uh, the arts are the one thing that keeps culture alive and humanity alive from music to cinema to paintings sculptures to poetry to prose, you know, all of that, you know, can be beautiful. And in a world that just suffers from cruelty, I mean, the cruelty that I've seen in my business, of course, there's going to be cruelty in government. I mean, it's, it's like a, a show. You know, now we're going to have to watch another two years of another election and then all those people come out denouncing each other. I'm like, so what? So you can be in control and have your power? What's wrong? And they're all, you know, they're all grease in their palms and politics. You know, when I told that story about the newspaper magnet hanging up on Trump, they're rich. Bankers. Who own banks all over the world, families. They're rich. They're not want to be a president of a country. They're running that country. Right. They're right. running it for money. You know, we live in a the United States, there's no gold to back all the paper money. There's no gold. It's just paper money. They just print to keep the economy going. But it doesn't mean anything. It's a piece of paper. You know, they print it 
for banks, the banks go to the government and say, we need this money. And they print it for them at no cost, you know, to keep the economy going. But it doesn't mean anything. That's why they want to get rid of money. They want to put it all on your phone, like in China. And if you speak up against the government, they block your phone so you can't get money or food. I'm watching it happen with the kids on the subway. They pay with, at the grocery store. Blink on their phone. Blink on the subway. Yeah. Venmo. Or, yeah. that phone. But what they're doing is they're giving away any privacy or any uh, freedom. Because if you don't behave, they'll shut your phone off and say, now are you going to behave? It's like a mm. prison. Mm. You know, so that's the thing. So I, it's madness. So I try not to think of it. I just focus on my painting. I can't take on a government or a phone company or anything like that. I'm just an individual. You know, uh, you can fight for your rights, like getting the Sackler's name off of the museums, like Nan Golden did, and it worked. You know, you can make a stand. It's a scary thing, but you can make it. And you might be killed or obliterated or shut out. But she did it. You know, she really risked her career, her life, her sanity. You know, it's incredible. They made a film of it. And Who are you talking about now again? Nan Golden, the yes. photographer. Yes, Nan and Golden. And the beauty and bloodshed. It is a magnificent documentary. So I went to a screen that outrageously good. You know, about an artist, an individual... They had addiction problems who took on that family and she got the, all those museums to take their names down. And the family she took on was again? Tacklers. And what, what, what was so bad about them? They make opioids. Ah, yes. Yeah. Which are good. You know, I mean, I have sciatica. I went to the hospital last year in outrageous pain and they gave me uh, opioids. They gave me morphine and uh, Oxycontin. And those yeah, power pills, but I hated the way they made me feel. Right, and they're highly addictive. And I know about the, the, the family you mentioned. They, what they did, though, is they really marketed it to people who didn't need it, you know? Yeah, I mean, of course. It's called Big Pharma. Right, and then they're well, drug I dealers. I, I lived in Ireland. I was in a hospital for a week when I first got sick. And I said... How much? And they said $90. Because I was an Irish citizen. That should be here. Free yeah. health care, like Europe does. It's a social, you take on socialist things like free health care and, you know, subsidize poor families. I came from a poor family. We got food in the Catholic school, free lunches, because we were so poor and there were so many of us. And I was humiliated and mocked by other kids. You know, because we were poor. And, you know, I'm a bleeding heart. I'm a tree-hugging liberal. When I made the Oscar Wilde Temple that will be shown at the Tate Modern in London, I said to them, there has to be a collection box with a lock on it, and that money goes to uh, LGBT homeless youth because they're the most vulnerable children. They're thrown out at 13. They're put in jail by their parents. The, the Albert Kennedy Trust in London takes care of runaways, kids on the street. 
And that's humanity. I get all the glory of creating this temple with a statue to Oscar Wilde and the 12 stations to Reading Jail from when he was arrested to when he was released, the resurrection of Oscar Wilde and all the martyrs and then that book where you could sign a name to someone you loved that died of AIDS. I mean, it's my greatest work because it's not about me. When did you do this? When did you do this? I did in New York in 2018. It went to London in 2019 and the tape came and they loved it and they want to show it. So that's an upcoming project. Yeah. And I said to them, this is part of the deal. You have a box, LGBT homeless youth. There's a lock on it. Albert Kennedy Trust has the key, not me and not you. And you can't know how much money's in there and you can't touch it. Bravo to you. Are you going to go over for the show when it happens? Are you kidding me? Of course. Of course. I don't know when it is because COVID set everything back two years. But, you know... That's what art's supposed to be. You know, what, it's not what, quite a tower, they used to call it, and complain about it in the early 80s. You know, they, this one woman, she wrote, where's the white ivory tower of art? This is the, you know, I don't like this. And it's like, art's for everybody. I was a kid in school who liked it, and that's how I got it, from taking art classes. You know, it's not about being a snob in this special circle. Most people like that. I find it boring. Some people, I mean, I'm not saying it's the art world's not fun, because there's a lot of fun people. But, you know, but to put all your eggs in one basket, it's disappointing for happiness. Money doesn't make you happy. It helps an awful lot. <laughs> but it doesn't change the person. You know, when you get money, you see who the person is. Like, if you're poor and you get money, you find out who that person is. And... You know, Bill Cunningham, the fashion photographer, the street photographer, said to me, money always ruins everything. It comes in and people get greedy and then the real vision. It's the vision. Uh, Russell Simmons wrote these books, Be Yourself, Be You Be You or something like that. And he was writing it for young people of color. And he was saying my greatest days were when I was with Rick Rubin in his dorm room starting that record company whatever it's called, Def Jam, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, that's it. And he was saying that was the most exciting part, and there was no money yet. It was getting the people, their music, the rapping, and making a record of it when there was no rap records. And, you know, and then you get rich, and then you're accused of sexually harassing people, and it's over with. You know, so it's really... With my painting, what happened to me in 2020, this freedom, I don't want to lose this money. I want to get the money, but I want to not think now I've made it. Because what I'm doing now is so rewarding and so beautiful. And it moves me so much. Like the Oscar Wilde Temple, when I was trying to get it off the ground and... 17 or 16 and I showed I made a little mock-up of it and I'd have these money people come and the curators come and I almost cried I was on the verge of tears when I would say what this means because it was so emotional for me because I knew this was a safe place for the LGBT community 
Whereas I wanted people to get married there. Only one lesbian couple when it was in London got married. No one in New York. I said, did you get married here? I said, not yet. I said, have it here. You said, where did you get married? The Osborne Temple. How great is that? Nobody. And, you know, that's what art is supposed to be. The artist's vision is supposed to uplift people. It's not about how famous and rich you are. Anybody can do that by selling stocks and bonds or selling, you know, hoodies or whatever. Start a fashion company, sell some hoodies and cargo shorts, yawn. And uh, that's what art's for. Art is about the ethereal, the sublime. You're touching the sublime. You know, I was reading Colette. The Vagabond was the first book. I hadn't read her and I bought it for a dollar on the street. The first page killed me how beautifully she wrote. How there was an insight to what she was writing about. You could feel it jump at you on the page. You know, art is a magical. It's it's not the erroneous. You know, it's uh, it's the ethereal. It's how one touches the sublime, connects with one's own true nature. You know, you know, give me a guitar and I'll start singing Kumbaya. But, you know, <laughs> I think that's why I make art. It lifts me out of my petty concerns and trivial uh, pursuits. I guess it's a game. But you know what I mean? And... Uh, I don't want to be trite. You know, I go and look at art and I'm like, well, that's really nice. Oh, they really know how to use paint. Oh, that's really current. That's, that's really what's happening now. Ooh, that's the next big thing. Oh, and then sometimes I'm like, and I'm overwhelmed. You know, I went to see this Robert Rauschenberg show in Chelsea in two galleries. of cardboard boxes that he worked with garbage. And I was overwhelmed at his vision of what a piece of cardboard in the hands of an artist could become. You know, if you're an artist, I mean, Basquiat, he'd just work on garbage. Find a piece of cardboard on the street and paint on it, a door, someone's refrigerator or something. He just couldn't stop. And that was a constant flow of creativity. And then, you know, he set out to destroy himself with becoming a heroin addict. He was a friend, right? All that beauty and pathos and all that radical racial anger and becoming subjected by a white world, art world. That's where the power leads. Not in his Armani suits and hanging, you know, out with, you know, whomever. You know, at the beginning, you know, when he was I met him when he was 17, and then, you know, Glenn O'Brien introduced me, and, you know, I just thought it was some good kid, and then you see these crazy paintings that he's making in the basement of, you know, I went to his place on Great Jones Street with this young art dealer in this village because he wanted him in a show. You know, you just see the, it was just, you know, I knew him, I was friendly with him in the East Village. I wasn't friends with him. And, uh, you know, just that raw talent pouring out on anything 
punching bag, you know, anything. And the, you know, that's dead and gone. And there's a lot of people that copy him, young artists. They just copy that vein. It's like, start your own war, you know? Start your own war of your vision. That was his. You know, that's the thing. When you're young and you're a student, you could be influenced by all these things. But when you're a mature person, find your own vision and throw it at the world. Find your voice. You know, do what you want to do. Truly become yourself. The individual with all of the pluses and minuses. All of the euphoria and rage. All of that. And then you can die. You can die. Are you kidding me? You're born, event, 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 and you're dead. From the cradle to the grave. It's a blitz. And you're going to be miserable? You're going to drink your life away or shoot yourself up? When nature, which is being destroyed daily, is so restorative and so magnificent, any person can look at a sunset in awe. You don't have to pull out your phone and photograph it. It's right there. Take it in into you. That magnificence of colors splattered across the sky, pinks or oranges. It's outrageous. I went to New... Where was it? Vermont. My friend had a little cabin on a lake across the street from a lake. There was no house in front of it. And every night I'd sit on her porch and I'd watch this outrageous display of colors. Hot pink sunset. Orange and yellow ones. Blue with a little streak of orange on the clouds. Nothing competes with nature. Nothing. In its magnificence, consistently unfolding in front of us. Raging waterfalls, beautiful the mountains in the fall of pinks and yellows and outrageous colors. So who cares? Why be miserable when you can look at nature, even in a park, when you watch the trees sway in the wind and the sun hits them and trickles and blinds you by its beauty? That's the crazy thing. Everything's here. And yet we're constantly looking for entertainment. You know, reach for the phone. Reach for the phone. Reach for my phone. Reach for my phone. Look at my phone. Look at this. Look at this. I saw this group of kids. They all had phones, all five of them, and they were showing each other things on their phone. They're like, you're sitting in a park where these trees are so gorgeous. But that's the world. I'm not in control of that. But for myself... You know, it's me, what I love to see. You know, I love to look at paintings because I want to see how they did it. I went to Christie's to see that Paul Allen sale. There were so many beautiful paintings. And one was the Monet of a bridge. And it was all done in lavenders. White, white, so pale, like the sun was hitting everything and blinding you. And I was completely mesmerized by his vision. Completely. He built a garden that he would walk in and paint in daily. A magnificent garden that you could still visit. Who needs a slab of concrete and an elevator, you know, when that's available? 
nature. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. from a short story by Peter Short titled Bottom Feeders, published in the November 2022 issue of The Sun magazine. I feel close to Dad on the drive home, our legs mud dry and tired, the tackle box between us, the pillowcase full of fish and ice, 
She'll never admit it, but Mom will be impressed. I'm sure. In a million years, she'd never guess how we caught so many. I'll never tell. Mom's outside unfolding card tables and chairs, snapping tablecloths into clouds. She's wearing her hot pink corduroy shorts high above her thighs and a gray T-shirt. The day-off clothes she changes into after her Saturday morning shift, stuffing envelopes and folding paper at the dentist's office. At least she can sit down for that. Most days, she cleans for a company that maintains mansions on the water during the off-season. Dusting is lonely, she once told me. She has a day and a half off every week. A rubber band holds back her hair, blonde and curling at the edges. She is focused, aligning the chairs just right, like the sacks she rolls into fists in my drawers. She's always pretty when she isn't worrying. We got 20 or 30 in here, I say, gesturing to the pillowcase. Dad places his heavy hand on my shoulder to quiet me. She looks up at us, ignoring my pride. You'll have to take those wet shoes off before you go in the house, she says. Ruth and Kathy are coming over. Dad lifts his hand off me. When did we decide this, he asks. When Ruth told me he got the Pelican Bay contract, she says. When was that? Last week. Were you going to say something about it? I'm saying something now. They'll be here in an hour. Dad closes his eyes, his breath slipping out like air from a tire. He doesn't like Uncle Caffey. Everyone knows this, including Mom, but she doesn't seem to care. Dad says Caffey couldn't hang drywall if you stuck a twenty-two in his ear and a sheet sander in his hands. He opens his eyes and studies Mom with a look that tells me he wants to hurt her feelings. Is that what you're going to wear? You look like a sheet cake. All my tame and all my wild All my man and all my child All my faults and all my scars All my sometimes lucky stars All my joys and my regrets All my old guy Clark cassettes I knew the night we met You'd get it all All my lows and all my highs All my truth and all my lies all my rights and all my wrongs All my from now on love songs All my future, all my roots All my worn out cowboy boots I kick off in the hall You get it all And I'd rather drive you crazy Being more than you can stand Than to let you try to love half a man Table. And darling, it's your call But I'm all in, so lose a win You get it all
cannabis sprinkles, a cup of black coffee to wash it over my taste buds. Inside it tingles. Rhythm and beat on the radio. A good book on the low brown table in front of the couch. If only Cain was able. Ouch. Katie girl, our chocolate lab sitting on my feet gnawing on her bone. The daylight from sunrise pours through all of the windows and fills us up with earth energy. I refuse to be a drone. I can smell incense burning and hear anticipation in the air.
And there you have it, episode 499 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Peter McGough. The Sun Magazine, Peter Short, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Fats Domino, Fun Boy 3, Style Council, Hayes Carl, Liz Cooper, Brentford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard 2. And, of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.